Mr. DeGarren, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I want to begin by talking about your background a bit. Why law? Why criminal law? Well, uh, it's more exciting <laughs> than any other kind of law, uh, frankly. Um, and the, the first real job I got out of law school was with the district attorney's office in Houston. Uh, as uh, as I, I just loved what I was doing, it was so dealing with people every day instead of documents and uh, wills or states or uh, corporations or insurance and things like that. Um, plus, I was uh, dealing with cops and uh, basically playing cops and robbers. And I was on the good side. And I got to... Uh, uh, ride along with uh, police officers. I was 23 or 24 years old and getting to ride in a cop car and uh, being able to leave whenever I wanted to <laughs> instead of being you know, taken to jail was something that was uh, a lot of fun, very exciting. I got in some uh, really exciting scrapes and I got to learn all the challenges that uh, law enforcement people on the front lines face, uh, which helped me be, I believe, a better prosecutor because it was more than just uh, a report in black and white about what had happened. It was seeing it for myself, and seeing the dangers and the challenges. So oh, you ask why criminal law, that's, I got interested at, at the very beginning. And uh, I'd always uh, had an interest in trials and being a trial lawyer and getting with the district attorney's office put me in the courtroom immediately. Whereas if I had been in with some big law firm, it would have taken years to get into a courtroom and then uh, only to determine who entered the intersection first or something like that, something not very meaningful. Your old boss, Percy Foreman, made a career of representing, let's say, unpopular people. How important is it for defense lawyers to zealously advocate for those people that society will deem undesirable, let's say? Well, it's what, what we're supposed to do. That's the first thing. Uh, if they're not lawyers that are willing to take the tough cases and the ones that representing represent the people that uh, society looks down upon, then um, that you don't get fair trials. You don't get a fair result. You can't um, rely on the results of trials if you don't have a reasonably equal advocates on both sides of the question. So as, a, as far as representing people uh, in, in criminal cases, the general public uh, usually believes that someone that's arrested and charged with a crime is guilty. And that's not always the case. In fact, uh, it's frequently not the case. And it's also frequently the case that uh, the authorities overcharge or charge much more serious crimes than what uh, really occurred, or that there's 
problems with the evidence, problems with the uh, testimony. There's all sorts of things that can be wrong with a criminal accusation. And it's the job of the lawyer to um, advocate for the client, not to be judgmental about uh, the client, but to be the client's advocate. The person uh, is entitled to someone that's on his side. And that's what a criminal defense lawyer, that's his sworn duty. Is trial work natural? In other words, does it have to come naturally or can it be taught over time? Or is it some combination of both? That's a, a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to it. It's come naturally for me. Uh, I like people. I like dealing with people. I like uh, the prospect of convincing people that what I say is correct. Um, and that's part of what uh, trial work is. It's presenting the most believable um, alternative fact uh, because a trial is a, is a uh, measuring of alternative facts, those alleged by the prosecution and those alleged by the defense. Sometimes, uh, in fact, probably the majority of times, it's a question of challenging what the state says rather than presenting an affirmative uh, view of the facts. Of course, by challenging what the state says, you are in effect presenting an, uh, an alternative view of uh, the facts. So uh, I like the challenge. Uh, it has come naturally to me, but I try to teach that advocacy in the classes that uh, I've taught for 25 years at uh, law school at the University of Texas. Uh, so if I'm <laughs> endeavoring to teach it, I must think that it's a skill that can be taught. I don't know if that's much of an answer to, is it natural or can it be taught? But it's, maybe it's a combination of both. I wanna talk about some of your cases and I wanna begin by talking about Waco. How did you get involved in representing uh, David Karsh? Um, I can give you the short story or the long story. The long story uh, is that uh, I had just been involved in a uh, criminal case, a, a capital murder case that had originated in Waco. It was uh, very notorious. It was called the Lake Waco Murders, three teenagers who were murdered brutally. And um, uh, the client that I represented had been convicted on his first trial. I didn't represent him. Uh, he had appealed the case on his own and gotten a reversal. And he hired me and I went to trial, removed the case uh, to Fort Worth. We tried the case in Fort Worth and it was televised full the whole trial from gavel to gavel in Waco. So uh, I was for a few months very well known in Waco. That was in uh, 
December of 1992. Well, the raid on the Branch Davidian compound was February the 28th, 1993, just a month, two months later. So most of the Davidians knew who I was. Uh, and there were a lot of lawyers that were trying to, to get involved in that case because it was a huge case. You know, it was a terrible um, abuse by the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms people. I'd had plenty of experience with them. Um, so that kind of sets the stage. And I got, I got a call from Bonnie Haldeman, who was David Korsh's mother. And uh, she asked me if I'd be interested in uh, representing him. And she, she didn't know what to do. That's the kind of call that defense lawyers often get. Uh, they frequently get a call from a mother or a father or a loved one of some sort of a person who is suspected of or accused of a crime and has not been actually brought into custody yet. What do I do? Well, the only thing that a lawyer can advise, of course, is we have to get you in custody if there's a warrant out for your arrest. So anyway, uh, she engaged me. Uh, and I wanted to be sure that I wasn't one of those lawyers that was soliciting the case. So I asked her to meet me in Waco with her in the car. I wanted her to be my credentials. And so that the FBI or whoever was making the decision on uh, who would be allowed to talk to Korish would know that I came from authority, from his mother. So that's how I got involved. And of course the FBI didn't want to let anybody talk to him. And I had trouble getting in contact with him myself because all, all outside contact had been cut off by the FBI after the ATF raid. But eventually they saw the uh, benefit of having, uh, being able to talk to someone that Corish uh, and the Davidians trusted. That would be me as their uh, uh, representative. So that's what I did. How did the siege at Mount Carmel get so out of hand? Well, uh, basically, it was a fuck up by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the bureau about which a congressman said they're just not, nothing but jackbooted thugs. I'd had um, unpleasant experiences with them as a defense lawyer in the past. So, so when I heard about the case long before I was contacted, when I heard about the case on the evening of February the 28th, I figured, well, they, they've, ATF is bound to have screwed it up in some way. And uh, when I started looking at the facts, the little facts that were known, um, which were by that time, uh, only the facts that the 
FBI was letting out, I could see that it was a, a raid that was uh, poorly planned, poorly executed, and uh, that the Davidians, who would be accused of killing the agents that were killed, probably had a self-defense uh, case to be made. And the deeper I got into it, the more convinced I became of that. But to answer your question directly, the ATF screwed it up. And uh, then the FBI came in that afternoon, the afternoon of the 28th, and pushed the ATF aside and took over the scene, surrounded the place, and uh, basically besieged it in the, the strictest definition of what a siege is. Uh, and, and siege is a form of warfare and has been since the earliest times. Basically cut off all communication and supplies to uh, the Davidians, which is the definition of a siege. You know, you look back in history, one of the most famous sieges in history was the siege of, at Constantinople. Uh, and another, of course, that's more uh, familiar to Texans uh, in our history is the siege of the Alamo. Uh, so I, I, I knew that's what was going to happen and there had to be some way to break that siege. How tough was it when the FBI ultimately told you you're not needed anymore, implying that the end was near, not only for Koresh, but others in the compound. I thought we had uh, a solution. Uh, I thought that I had a, a plan worked out where uh, Koresh would surrender with, uh, I would go in and he would walk out with me and surrender to a Texas Ranger. Now there's an old apocryphal tale in Texas, uh, about uh, uh, how back around the turn of the previous century, in 1900, there was a riot in uh, far north Texas. The Texas Rangers are known as a statewide, uh, very uh, elite police agency, and they've been known as such since uh, the beginning of Texas history as a first a nation and then a state. And so the story goes that the, the sheriff of this small town in North Texas where there was this riot going on, telegraphed the uh, governor in Austin and said, governor, we've got a riot going on up here. Send the Rangers. And the governor telegraphed back, okay. And the next train arrives, the sheriff's there to meet the train and off the train steps one captain of Texas Rangers, one ranger. And the sheriff says, what, you're only one ranger? And he said, well, you only got one riot. And, uh, so it's, it's kind of ingrained in anybody that's grown up in Texas that the Rangers are 
uh, who to deal with and tough to deal with. I thought that because uh, Koresh and the other Davidians distrusted and had every reason to distrust uh, federal law enforcement, that they would see the value and uh, the public relations value, in fact, in having Koresh uh, surrender to one Texas Ranger. And so uh, that was my solution to it. I proposed that to the Rangers that I was dealing with. And uh, they said, we'll do that, but you got to get the FBI to approve it. I uh, went to the FBI uh, agents in charge that I was dealing with who had uh, allowed me to go into the compound on five different days and proposed that. And they said, well, if that'll work, we'll do it. Uh, they, they didn't seem to be too happy about it because it was in, in essence turning over their investigation to the Rangers, but they'd already decided to do that as far as the investigation into the murder of the agents on February the 28th. So that's what was gonna happen. Um, the next time I went to Waco and I, uh, it was gonna take a week or so Korish was said that he was in the uh, middle of uh, writing his interpretation of uh, the seven seals of the book of Revelation, and he wanted to get that done before he surrendered. Um, and as soon as he got that done, and he would come out with me. And I told the FBI that. They uh, muttered under their breath and said, well, well, we'll wait. We can take all the time we need. I didn't know that at that very moment, uh, they were uh, planning with Janet Reno a tank and tear gas assault. So I left Waco and I went on about my business waiting to get the call that Corish was ready to come out uh, having finished the seven seals. And the next call I got was from my wife on the morning of the 19th saying, turn on the television. I did, and I saw that the tanks were poking holes in the building and inserting tear, tear gas, and so I called the FBI. And I reached the um, special agent in charge I'd been dealing with, Bob Ricks, and said, I can see that this is it. This is... Uh, you, you've lost your patience. I'll come down there and, and go back in and bring him out. He, he said, you don't need to. We don't need you anymore. I, I went down there anyway. But by the time I got there, the place was had burned to the ground. I was in, in uh, about to start a trial in North Texas, in Denton, Texas, before North Texas. And it took me um, basically a half a day to get out of that trial, go back to my hotel, pack up and come back down to Waco. And I got there about noon and it was, it was gone. What impact do you think Waco, perhaps in conjunction with Ruby Ridge, had an impact on the way the American public viewed government power? I think it was a wake up call. Uh, Maybe not everyone, maybe not uh, even a majority of people, but it was certainly 
something that was a, a, a government fiasco, a law enforcement fiasco. Uh, and what it illustrated, certainly for me and for others, lawyers that had been dealing in this, but what for people that really looked at it was the awesome power of law enforcement. I mean, here was, this was supposed to be a civilian law enforcement effort to uh, arrest and bring charges against uh, David Koresh and originally uh, for possession of illegal weapons. At the, at the time, it was a minor federal felony. And yet, everyone in the compound, only a few people had anything to do with the guns. <coughs> everyone in the compound was treated the same way. That is, by a, a virtual army of heavily armed law enforcement people descending on their home um, and a firefight started. At the same time, um, the, the law enforcement people that were investigating had no idea of what, what the beliefs of these people were. They had very strongly held beliefs that uh, the end of the world was coming and that they were going to be attacked by forces of evil from the outside. And they were preparing to defend themselves in that attack. Um, as I said, there were very few of those inside that were involved in the gun business, but they were all, uh, most of them were prepared to defend themselves in Texas, as well as most states. <clears throat> in fact, in most countries, the human right of self-defense is recognized in the law in various ways, but uh, the law in Texas as well as elsewhere is that you do not have the right to resist a lawful arrest. And that's pretty clear. But you have the right to defend yourself against excessive force. And those two rights sometimes come into conflict. If, uh, if a law enforcement officer has a legal warrant and yet tries to execute that warrant using excessive force, then you have a right to resist that. And if the excessive force is deadly force, as it was here, then you have the right to resist it with deadly force. And that was, that was the defense that I saw from the very beginning. And in fact, uh, jump forward two years later to the trials of the survivors and who were all charged with murder and a conspiracy to murder. The, uh, the jury in San Antonio, Texas acquitted all of them, found them all not guilty on that basis. Self-defense. You ask uh, whether it had an effect on the public. I, I, I hope so. I think that it changed a lot of uh, approach, approaches that uh, FBI has taken since then. And uh, it certainly caused a giant shakeup in the uh, ATF Bureau. And I think they're, they're much more uh, cautious and careful of 
the use of excessive force nowadays. I want to talk about your representation of Robert Durst. Were you surprised when Durst was charged with the murder of Susan Berman? I was. Uh, I say surprised. I, I didn't think that he would be because I had evaluated that case on what was known to me uh, 10 years earlier. I tried uh, the first murder case he was charged with and um, we got our verdict in uh, 2003. It happened in 2001. And in the preparing for that case, of course, I became aware of the disappearance of his wife, for one thing, and the murder of Susan Berman in California, for another thing. But I looked at the evidence that was known at that time and didn't think there was any evidence that he was responsible for either one. And in fact, got the judge in Galveston, Texas, to rule that the prosecution couldn't bring evidence forward of that either one of those cases. But then, um, like a lot of people in the country, I've watched the six-part series, The Jinx. In fact, I had been interviewed for it a year or two before it came out. I recommended that Bob not be interviewed for it. He didn't take my recommendation. All of his lawyers said he shouldn't interview for it, but he insisted. And of course, uh, it wasn't a documentary. It was an effort to uh, get him to entrap himself. And uh, so by the time the sixth segment was about to come out, I knew that uh, they were going to charge him. In fact, before uh, the sixth segment, I talked to him the week before. And I had a plan. I wanted to take him out to L.A. and surrender him so that uh, he could perhaps make bond uh, and show to the prosecutors there that he was not going to run. But um, unfortunately, he again didn't take my advice and he ran and was caught in New Orleans the day before the airing of the sixth segment. Was the fact that he was better known or so much better known by the time that second trial came around, did that make it more difficult to represent him? How did that complicate the case? Uh, yeah, it did uh, complicate the case. <clears throat> of course, the, the trial in Galveston, um, the general public didn't see the evidence and wasn't at the trial and so didn't see what we saw and what we presented. And uh, it was a shock to the general public that he was acquitted. So it got a tremendous amount of not only statewide, but nationwide publicity about that. So he became a very well-known person as a result of it. Although he was well-known and his family was well-known in New York before that. Uh, it made it much more difficult because there were so many people that uh, thought that uh, he should have been convicted and thought that he had uh, escaped justice. And therefore they were willing to believe that he was uh, guilty 
of uh, of whatever they were going to charge him with, and it uh, uh, brought people out of the woodwork to testify about him who really had no direct knowledge of anything. Um, and then COVID hit uh, right during the middle of the beginning of the trial and made everything even more difficult because when, when we came back after uh, COVID, COVID of course isn't over yet, but when we came back, the jurors were all wearing masks. The witnesses were wearing masks. The lawyers, the judge, everybody in the courtroom was behind a mask and uh, it just was not a fair trial. And uh, by that time he was, uh, he'd had a lot of health problems. He was very sick. Uh, he should not have been tried because he was not able to defend himself. He was just not there. It was like there was a, a guy on his deathbed sitting next to me in the courtroom. Um, it was pretty difficult. Did you expect a conviction in that case? Well, after uh, all the uh, difficulties that we had uh, in selecting a jury in the first place, in um, trying the case, half of the case was tried with um, depositions that were recorded. In other words, it was tried by television and uh, with uh, his inability to be of assistance. Um, the longer it went on that way, the more worried I became about the outcome. And I, I, Frankly, I still had hopes at the very end. I guess, um, I guess you have to to keep, keep on, keep on fighting. But that's, I, I was uh, not surprised at the verdict. Mr. Guerin, I'll let you go on this. Why are good criminal defense lawyers important? The power of the state, the power of law enforcement, uh, the power of the government is so overwhelming that when the government chooses, and by the government I mean state, federal, local, chooses to uh, accuse someone of commission of a crime, chooses to take away their liberty, um, under our system, which is a adversary system, an accusatory system, every person is entitled to uh, defend themselves. And of course, lay people cannot be expected, to, even lawyers couldn't be expected to defend themselves without outside help. And so from the earliest times we've recognized, and we got this from um, the British system of law, uh, and from the common law, lawyers have become have been advocates for their clients to advocate um, the rules of evidence, uh, rules of procedure, the constitutional rights of individuals, 
uh, and, and the criminal laws. It's very important that someone that uh, is conversant with and knows all those rules and regulations uh, stand by the side of someone that's accused. Otherwise, we would have trial by affidavit, or trial by inquisition. And it would become uh, the person who's accused responsibility to prove their innocence. That's uh, so contrary to our uh, system of justice as to be abhorrent to me. So it's important to have lawyers to advocate, to stand up for someone. Mr. DeGaron, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for talking about your career, your background, your views. It's very much appreciated. You're welcome.